Well, dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to that Psalm 2 that I read to you in your hearing, and the Lord graciously enabling me this evening to minister his word to the profit of your souls and to the glory of our great God and our Savior, his name. Well, we have preached a number of times on this psalm. It's been a few years now since I've preached on Psalm 2, but it's a psalm that I feel very strongly we need to sing often and much. It's a psalm we need to read in our own private reading and devotion. It's a psalm that not only are we to sing and to read, but we're to hear this psalm preached on frequently. It's a psalm of great praise to the Lord and the salvation that he has wrought for his people. It helps us also to see things, as it were, from the vantage point of heaven. As God looks down, as God holds men in derision, as he that is in the heaven laughs and scoffs, not a mocking laugh, not a deriding laugh, but as he who cannot be frustrated, he is never disappointed. He is working his purposes out, this God of heaven who sent his Son into this world. This psalm speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm here is believed is more than likely written by David, or David the penman, the Holy Spirit, the author of this psalm, given to David. Peter quotes this psalm. The Apostle Paul quotes this psalm. When the apostles were very downcast after preaching in Jerusalem, after the Lord Jesus Christ rose, triumphed over the grave and over sin. After that day of Pentecost, when the church began to multiply and men were added to the church and they were being baptized and then being added to the church and coming under the apostles' teaching and instruction. And then as the Lord began to bless his word and as Peter preached and Later on, as Paul preached, and James and John, and as they knew the blessing of the Lord, and as the disciples were thrown in prison when they prayed, and they were in great anguish. We have these words in Acts 4.25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. On the authority of what the Apostles have said, we can say that this is what David wrote, because that's what we're told there in Acts 4.25, who by the mouth of the servant David, David was a prophet. And then furthermore, in that prayer, Peter said, as he quoted this Psalm 2, verse 1, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Then we read verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. We have on affirmation of the apostles saying that it was David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter and the apostles confirming that the one spoken of here, the anointed, is the Lord Jesus. So we are completely confident that we're not overstepping the boundaries in stating that this psalm has specifically to do with the glorious work of redemption of Jesus Christ. 
nothing less. He came into the world, the world that he made. We're told by John, though he made the world, and he was in the world, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not, that is, the Jews. They put him to death, along with the Gentiles. And then we read in verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, they praying to the Father. Look at Acts 4 there, verse 27. Whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, we saw this with the young people yesterday, for to do, Father, whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined to do, to be determined before to be done. So scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ coming to the world. And he has fulfilled most of the psalm. There's one final thing that he will need to do. His enemies will need to bow down one day and confess that he is Lord. This is a rebellious world that denies its creator, that denies Almighty God the Son. In Acts 13, again, we have it. The Apostle Paul later on, if you turn to Acts 13, verse 14 there, we read that when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Acts 13, verse 14, verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now this was the word of exhortation. And Paul stood up. And beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought them out of it. And he gives the history of Israel. And then he comes right down to this promised Messiah, the one that would be promised to come from Judah. To save time, to come down straight to verse 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Now notice, and these are words taken from this psalm, as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now there have been many people over the ages that have refuse to acknowledge the idea that the psalms are actually numbered. But we have it stated for us here. There's a second psalm, there's a first psalm, there's a third psalm. The psalms are numbered. They're ordered. Psalm 1 has often been referred to as the heavenly bouncer. Because they're distinguished as the just and the unjust. There's no in-between. There were those who were justified by God and there were those who were not. Those who were justified by God delight in his law, in the inward man. And they shall be amongst the company of the angels, and the just men made perfect one day. They are the Lord's people. And they delight in this one. 
who the Father has revealed to them. They delight in the Lord, and they do not, as the rest of the world, rage. Would you notice, why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? Now, before we come to that verse, let me say there are so many allusions to Psalm 2 in the New Testament. Let me just give a few, first of all, very briefly. Hebrews 1.4, he being made also, being made so much better than the angels. And we have the quotation there in verse 5, to which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul is writing there. And then we have Hebrews 5.5, 5. I won't read it. Then you have Revelation 2.26 to 29. Then you have Luke 24, verse 24. And there's a quotation there. Of the Lord as he expounded all things concerning himself in the Psalms and the prophets. And he would no doubt have expounded himself here in Psalm 2. This Lord Jesus, who the Father sent... So as we come, I, what I want to do is walk through this psalm very briefly here this evening and expound the truths in this psalm to the prophet of our souls. I also want to address especially the unsaved here this evening. I want to say the world is full of rage in so many ways. We, we live in a world that is full of rage. We hear of road rage today, don't we? We hear of People raging about anything and everything, it seems. We live in a complaining society. And yet there are those who rage against God. I think we live in such an age where people speak so brazenly and live, as it were, with an open fist before a mighty God. People are so brazen that they will write in newspapers against God. Consider men such as Christopher Hitchens. Consider some of the great outspoken critics of the last few centuries. Voltaire. All of these so-called wizards of philosophy and knowledge. How brazenly they speak. But it's always been. But it seems to be getting worse. The philosophers in Paul's age, well, they were darkened, and they spoke foolishly about God. We're reminded in the word of God not to speak foolishly. God is in heaven. But let us just look at these verses here. The first verse, why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. It's a question that is asked, why? Why do the heathen rage? Who are the heathen, the unbelieving? Supposed atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. If there's no such thing as a God, why do they rage? I often have people in the open air come and they say, There is no God, and they're angry. They're just angry. Well, if there is no God, you don't have a problem. Just walk on by. Well, they do have a problem, they have a problem with a real God. And there's a warning in this psalm. It, it closes with a warning. Maybe you're here tonight. You're somebody that says, I don't have a contention against God. Yes, you do. The Lord Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. 
He makes claims upon all men. He's the judge of all earth. And the Bible says all have sinned, all come short of his glory. And there is not a just man alive. Never has been. Ever since Adam. And there's an exhortation as the psalm closes. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That kiss means embrace. Embrace him with all your heart. For that son is God, and I will show you tonight. As we believe that prayer is praise, even the father praises the son. This is amazing. If you turn with me quickly there to Hebrews chapter 1. Now I want you to see how important the Lord Jesus Christ is. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of glory. One who is to be feared. Even whom the Father acknowledges. The Lord Jesus who you must acknowledge. And the Father calls the Son God. Let me strike you with something astonishing in the Scriptures tonight. Hebrews 1 verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. Jesus Christ, my friend, is Almighty God. And the Father acknowledges him as God. This is as if the Father is praising him and even praying to him. The Son prayed to the Father, praise. What is prayer? Prayer is praise. And the Father gives his praise to the Son. And if the Father gives his praise to the Son, so better we. Wouldn't you agree? The Muslims have a real problem with this verse. This is a good verse to give to your Muslim friends or your acquaintances. Does the Father praise the Son? Yes. What does he say? But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This Son is the first and the last. The Muslims say in the Quran that God is the first and the last. Jesus said, I am the first and the last. And the Father praises the Son. And the Son is full of praise of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God. God was manifest in the flesh. We need to acknowledge him tonight. Kiss the Son. Embrace him. Because this God, as we will read, is our creator. And he is the husband of his people. As we will read in Isaiah. We sang, didn't we, there from Psalm 45. Of the King eternal, God only wise, who the Father praises, and who we ought to praise this night. But let's come to the verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? Well, they rage against God. I've just introduced you to the fact, if you didn't know it before, that Jesus Christ is God. God the Son, who the Father praises. We saw it there in Hebrews 1. And they rage against God's only begotten Son, eternally proceeding from Father 
as the Spirit of Almighty God eternally proceeds from Father and Son. God is Spirit, yet in three divine persons. And the whole world was made by him. And this world, ever since Cain, has raged against God, against his Holy One. Cain hated that sacrifice. He hated that blood sacrifice. Satan has always hated God. He has always hated Christ. Ever since, ever since the fall, the world mocks God and mocks his son. We live in a world, do we not, that hates God and hates authority. Notice verse 3, let us break their bands asunder. Their bands, the eternal God, the God who is one yet in three persons. God said, let us make man in our image. And this is what man says, we will not be under the authority of God. We will not be under the authority of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. Let us break their bands asunder. That's the world, isn't it? Do we not live in a world that hates authority? I mean, even look at the modern church today. It doesn't like accountability. People do not want to be accountable to one another nor Christ. It's so true in churches today. We live in a world that hates authority because it wants to do its own thing. Well, that's... We see Adam and Eve. They rebelled against the authority of God, didn't they? They're in the garden. And see where it got them. The wages of sin... Is death. We read of the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ in these last days, my friend. There in Matthew chapter 24, don't we? In verse 11, he says, Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity or lawlessness shall abound. Lawlessness. That's an abrogation of God's word, his law, what he commands. We're seeing that in the churches, amongst even who profess to be the Lord's people, the love of the many. Love is the moral essence and directive of the law. What is to love? The Lord Jesus said what he was asked the question by the scribe, wasn't he? What's the chief and greatest commandment? And he answered, it is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength. He quoted the first table of the law, and then he quoted the second table and to love thy neighbor as thyself. Love, Romans 13, is the fulfillment of the law. And what we see in this increasing age of abounding iniquity, this age of increasing abounding iniquity is lawlessness. And people saying, we will not, we will break their bands. We will not be subject to God. Who is the Lord? Remember what Pharaoh said, that, we should, that I should obey him. That's the language of the world. It rages against God. I am my own man. I will have my own life. I will live as I want. I will not come under any authority. Fine, you'll ruin yourself. Fine, you'll come under judgment, my friend. And you will hear those words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of Lawlessness, iniquity. 
The Lord says, this is my law, and men will obey it. Men will say, I will not grovel before God. I'll not bow down. I'll not, I'll not grovel. I'll not serve God. Man hates the idea that his knee should bow before God. Now, God determines what reality is, not what people think, not even what people believe. That's not reality. You can believe what you like, but that's not reality. Reality is this. God sent his son into the world. We mark the year 2023 by his coming into the world, don't we? Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That's reality. The whole world marks it. Yet the striking thing is the world chooses to sort of hide that fact. I think it's the most astonishing thing in all the world. And men even question the reality of Christ coming into the world. And yet we have the most glaring proof of it. The year in which we live. Why do the heathen rage? They rage at God. They rage at his son, who is God. Now there are four voices in the psalm. I want you to notice. The first voice is the voice of the rebels, and we have it here. Why do the heathen rage? And then we have the voice of God the Father in the verse 6. So in the first part there, we have the voice of the heathen, not just verse 1, but we have it again in verse 3. And then we have the voice of the Father. Verse 6. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So the voice of the rebels first. Then the voice of the Father, verse 6. And then we have the voice of Christ, verse 7 to the verse 9. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. This is the Son. This is God the Son speaking. Thou art my Son. The Father's quoting what the Father has decreed and declared to him. And again, Paul quotes it in Hebrews 1. And then fourthly, we have the voice of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 to the verse 12. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. This is God's word. The Holy Spirit is speaking here. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. Now, I've already pointed out from the New Testament there, from Acts 4, Acts 13, Hebrews 1, and various other passages of Scripture, we should be left in no doubt that this psalm speaks concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, first of all then, do the heathen rage. This is an unbelieving world. Now, the world is willfully unbelieving. When we, think, when we talk about unbelief, it's not that men are not consciously aware that there is a creator. Because Paul tells us in Romans 1, God has revealed that he is by the things that he has made, so that men are without excuse. They know there is a creator. And yet they willfully try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The very Lord of glory created the heavens and the earth. And men 
They see God's glory every day. They see the power of Christ. And yet they rage against the Christ. Now what is their line of attack? Look at the rebels. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord. As soon as he was born in this world, as soon as he came, they took counsel. We have Herod, even Satan, who was at work, working in that family line and had been. Right even from Genesis 3.15, we see the seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent, taking counsel against the Lord. We see, we saw just recently Athaliah, how she tried to kill all the seed royal. And then finally, when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, Herod, and they had to, his parents had to take him into Egypt. That was even prophesied. Even when he came into the world, the devils, they knew he had appeared. And they said, what wouldst thou have to do with us, Jesus, thou son of David? And what is their line of attack? Well, really, it's upon God and his bands, his laws. They say, let us break, let us break their bands. That's the triune God's bands, his laws. Asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. I know this is perhaps difficult language for us to understand, but we have to understand, don't we? God has cords, he has bands in which he keeps his people. We're told by the word of God, are we not, that the believer is kept by the law of God, that the commandments keep us in the right path. When Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, they chose a wrong path. They chose to break the cords, the bands. They went beyond the boundary. And it was to their ruin. A man is like that. He even knows every man has the law of God written upon the fabric of his conscience. And he knows his conscience accuses him. And yet man says, I know in his heart this is wrong. And when God's people do what is right, they seem to attack God's people. Why is there such antagonism? And you can even see it amongst people who would be Christians and those who would be professed Christians. And there's an antagonism because the Christian is keeping the law and the person who's a mere professor is angry because he's shown up by the true believer. That was true in the Lord Jesus Christ's day. You had the Pharisees, and the scribes. Why did they hate Christ so much? Because they knew the truth. And yet they would not obey the truth. They would not submit to the truth. They were breakers of the law. Let us break their bands asunder. But God's people love God's bands. It's like a good family with loving, obedient parents. They have rules in the house. And those children feel very secure because they know the boundaries. They know the rules. And that's a good, secure home. It's a loving home. And my friend, God has his rules. Sin is sin. You walk contrary to God's law, it is what? Sin is anomia. It's against the law. 
It conflicts against the character and the nature of God. And every man is made in the image of God, my friend. And God's laws are there for a man's good. We're told that we're not in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. That is, they do not ruin a man. If a man is saved, if he's converted, those commandments are not grievous, they do him good. But the world is not converted. The world has a heart that is averse against God. It hates God. The carnal mind is enmity with God. The unbeliever says we don't even want Christians to be under, the, uh, that's what the unbeliever thinks. We don't want the, the Christian to be under God's law because when they walk with God, they show us up for what we are. We want our sin. We want our lifestyle. Let us break their bands asunder. The bands of God and the bands of God's people. My friends, if you are a faithful Christian, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And if empty professors hate you, don't be surprised. What did the Lord Jesus say in Matthew 24? Verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. Well, then he goes on to say in that chapter, that many false teachers shall arise. And these false teachers shall heap up their own congregations and people, but amidst them will be those who there's no love to God. The love of the many shall wax cold. The world is enraged. Enraged at God. And world is enraged at the, at the Christian. The Christian is despised. The conservative Christian is despised. He tries to walk right with God. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, marvel not if the world hated you, for it hated me first. I'm really speaking also to the lost here. I'm trying to challenge you on your position. Why is it that you are so aggravated Well, the Lord Jesus said, men will not come to the light because they love darkness. That's the reason. And if they come to the light, their deeds are exposed, he said. That's the truth. In Psalm 69, verse 4, we read concerning Christ, it's a messianic psalm. It says there, they that hate me, hate me without a cause, more than the hairs of my head. They hated him without a cause. Think of it. The Lord Jesus, when he came into the world, he went about just doing good. And men hated him. They hated him because there was a pure life. There was a godly life. There was a man who spoke the truth. In his mouth there was no guile. Do people imagine a vain thing? Well, what is the vain thing? Even the people in his day, they... When they saw him do all these miracles, the people in his day, the Jews, when he came and it was fulfilled, when he came to this world, they imagined that they could make him an earthly king, that he would be attracted to this world. 
that he would be just like the rest. That's a vain thing. Could you really see the Lord Jesus Christ living comfortably in this world? Those of us who know him, he'd never be comfortable in this world. They imagined a vain thing. They thought, remember when he fed the thousands, they took him to grab him to make him king, that he escaped from the midst. And even when they followed him, he said, you seek me because your belly was filled. That's why you sought me, for earthly things. And you think that I have an interest in this world and temporal things. He said, even when he was about to be put to death, that my kingdom is not of this world. Is it? It wasn't. The Jews imagined a vain thing. That their Messiah would set up an earthly kingdom. But you know, when, he, when they saw him, when they saw him, they put him to death. Because they didn't like him. Because man rages against God. They just wanted an earthly king. They wanted a king to make the nation great, to make them wealthy again, to free them from the Romans. They didn't see that they needed a savior for the soul. But some of them imagined that they could get rid of him. They imagined a vain thing. We can silence him. We can snuff him out. We can put him to death. We can even maybe bribe the Roman guards. What a vain thing. Because at one time he was seen after his resurrection by over 500 men. A vain thing. And his church has gone on. It's a vain thought. They thought they could kill him. But he rose from the dead. According to the scriptures. A vain thing. As I said he appeared to over 500 men at once. After the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Their efforts against the son of God were fruitless. Herod's was. Pontius Pilate washing his hands, fruitless, guilty. Pilate, it's believed, committed suicide. He was the vain man. These vain kings that plotted against him. And his name, furthermore, is famous all over the world, isn't it? He's alive. He speaks the last words in Scripture. Behold, I am he... It was dead and I'm alive now forevermore. A vain thing it was. Now notice the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Verse 2 against the Lord and against his anointed. That is his son which he has anointed to be king over his people forever and forever. And they say let us break their bands asunder. That is the unbeliever rejects God's commandments. But what a foolish thing. God's commandments are for the good of men. And they reflect the character of God. Have you ever read the law in such a way? What does the law do? It, it, it reflects who God is. And what we should be like. But that's the world. Because the world is in darkness. And the world says, I will not have this man to rule over me. We want our sin. That's the world, isn't it? But what does he say? Come. 
Unto me all ye that labour, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What did he say? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Remember what the Lord said to Paul. Saul, on that road, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Saul had to come to terms that it was a vain thing to rage against the Christ. He had to learn of Christ. Christ is God the Son. And then we have the Father's response to all of this in verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Not humorously, but in their evil attempt, my friends. The Lord shall have them in derision. You see, the more people oppose God's Son and His laws, the more judgment they heap upon themselves, and the more they ruin themselves. It's even true in the professing church. When I say professing, people who profess to be Christians. God's laws are for the good of a man's soul. If you reject God's laws, it shows that you're in bondage to sin. You're a slave to sin. You'll not be a slave to righteousness. You're not a saved man. If you have a problem with God's laws, and if they, if they are grievous to you, you have to ask, are you saved? Are you a converted man at all? And the more miserable will your life be if you live under your own laws. You know, the best king is the Lord Jesus. You see, Christ is the stumbling stone for so many men. He was the stumbling stone, that stone, that rock of offense. Men continue to oppose the truth. They think that they know what's good for them, but they don't know. That's the folly of man. Men oppose Christ in this world. Well, even Nebuchadnezzar tried to do it, didn't he? Try to oppose the Lord. And that the Lord had to humble that man. What did he say? He glorified God in the end, Nebuchadnezzar. As God humbled him, God will laugh and hold them in derision. Look at verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. My friends, this coming a day when those who resist Christ will know God's sore displeasure will know his anger forever and forever. Verse 6, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. My friends, God has already enthroned him. A throne was prepared for him even before he left. And the father knew he would return victorious over this world. Did he not overcome the world? He has. He has overcome sin, death, the grave. That's what Christ overcame. Even the last enemy, death, he overcame it for his people. But what is the end to them that resist him? Death, the second death. No hope for those who do not hope in Christ. No hope at all. It's a lost eternity, my friends. The second death awaits you. 
He conquered death for those who believe in him, who trust in him, who love him. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's where he is now. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies my footstool. He is in Zion, the heavenly Zion. That place where the spirits of just men are made perfect, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. And my friends, the world will end soon. It's not long. This world is coming to a very swift end. Your life is coming to a very swift end. Very soon it will end. Your days, if they be three score years, 60 years, that's not many. If they be three score and ten, not many either. Four score years, or maybe more. What's that? In light of eternity, nothing. Your time will end. He lived, he died, he's enthroned in heaven now. And he will come as judge of all men. What is the decree? Now you have the response, the response of the Son in verse 7. The Lord, the anointed, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my Son. God issued a decree. And what was the decree? I've begotten thee, ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. That's an amazing thing. You see, this salvation that God the Son has wrought for his people was really a gift from the Father. A wonderful gift. The love gift to his Son that he should have a bride. We sang it this evening. A bride from this world that he, he should take heathen, ungodly people that he should die for them, that he should suffer there upon the cross, that he should live for them and earn for them a righteousness to give them eternal life. Eternal life as many as the Father had given him. As many as the Father had decreed to give him. But he had to purchase them with his shed blood. I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them with a, in pieces like a potter's vessel. It does not here speak of the destruction of such a people, but he will change. Think of the image of a clay jar that it is broken, but then it is fashioned again, made to a new vessel, fitted to glory. In Adam... We're taken out of the clay of Adam, and all that are in Adam die. But when God converts you, it's as if he, he breaks you and he makes you a new man, and he fits you in Christ for glory. God has to make a new man. It's called the new birth. It's called being born again. It's called dying to yourself. It's called loving his laws. When he puts his laws in your heart, we've read how the heathen rage and say, let us break their bands. Now when the person's saved, the person says, Lord, I love thy law. I delight in the law in the inward man. And there's a struggle now against sin. And there's a want to please the Lord who died for them. That's what is in the new man. He is born again. The vessel is made a new vessel. Go down to the potter's house in Jeremiah 
Lord says, I will make a new vessel. And that's what he does. Whoever is in Christ is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now look at the Holy Spirit's response in verse 10 and advice. Now I know God does the work, that work of regeneration, but he works through the instrumentality also of the preaching of the word and through the exhortation of the Spirit. And the scriptures we're told by Paul are able to make us wise unto salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. Look at the words in verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. We're told in Revelation that he makes his people kings and priests forever. They made kings. He takes them from the dunghill of this world and sets them amongst princes. The language here is to convey that God lifts a man to a higher state than he ever was. To be a king and priest forever to God. That's what we read in the book of the Revelation. He that has washed us in his blood and has made his people kings and priests forever. A king is somebody who rules. Rules over what? Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. When you are saved, my friend, sin no longer has dominion. It's still in you, but it doesn't reign. And priests. Priests unto who? Unto God. Doing what? Offering yourself now as a reasonable sacrifice, as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's what he does when he saves. Be wise. Be wise, be instructed, O ye judges of the earth. Not here speaking merely of of men who are judges, but we are told, remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, you will judge. And what is the exhortation? Serve the Lord with fear. You see, if you've been brought and made wise to who this king is, God the Son, of whom the Father says, O God, He says to the Son, O God, thy thy kingdom is forever. Hebrews 1, verse 8. The Father says to the Son, O God, thy kingdom is forever. And you embrace him, and you love him, you'll serve him forever. You'll not be sent away by him into outer darkness created the world and he will banish those who do not bow the knee and confess that he is Lord he will banish them away forever and forever because they denied him and they never loved him who gave himself for poor helpless sinners I want you to think about it in old John Kent's hymn we read sinner if thou art taught to see How great thy guilt and misery in every thought and act impure the blood of Christ thy soul can cure. Daily to feel thyself undone will make thee haste to kiss the Son 
and on thy knees for pardon sue, and praise and bless and love him too. What sweet words. If your eyes have really been opened up to see the King, the King of glory, God's holy Son, you will rejoice, and you will just be only too glad to serve him, my friend. And you say, what, Lord, is that all you ask me to do? I want to do more for you, Lord. For some people, you ask them to do a little bit for the Lord. It's like squeezing blood out of a stone. You can't get it out. And you have to wonder, is there any, any faith in that person? Is there any life in that person? That's not a Christian. Christian is somebody that loves the Lord. His eyes have been brought to see that Christ became the second Adam. Remember, as I said, Adam, I said it last week, Adam had a wife, Eve. But Adam proved not to be a very good husband, did he? He failed and Eve failed. They both sinned in the garden. But this husband will never fail. Never, never will he fail his bride. He bought his bride. He bought his church. With his blood, he purchased to be the unfailing, unfailing one. In Isaiah 54, we read this, and this is concerning the Lord Jesus. Thy maker is thy husband. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Straight after Isaiah 53, we know that passage having to do with the bleeding, suffering, dying Savior. We read this for all of his church. Here's the exhortation to the church, to all who love and obey Christ. They are to rejoice. For thy maker, that's your creator, is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. This is why we exhorted here, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Do you feel, my friend, as John Kent said, to feel yourself undone? Look what it cost to save sinners. God had to come in the flesh and die for sinners, to suffer. In their stead. And there is absolutely no other way under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved except this Son. And we are to exalt Him, to praise Him, to serve Him. Look, serve Him with reverence and godly fear. Do you love Him? Love Him more. We don't love Him enough. None of us do that we should desire that more and more. Oh, for grace to love him more. Ask God for grace. He will give it abundantly. Ask him for faith. To see more of Christ. And he will show more. Amen.